0: On Commons People this week, Rishi's second rescue plan. First, it will support viable jobs. A fresh Covid crackdown. But unless we palpably make progress, we should assume that the restrictions I have announced will remain in place for perhaps six months. And we're all missing Labour conference. But but what what, is the Labour Party position? What you said in January? and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Waugh. Hi Arj. Hi Paul, Rachel Wehmath here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel and um, we're delighted to be joined by Labour's Shadow Community Secretary Steve Reid.
1: Hello Arj, great to be
0: here. Hi Steve, how are you? Where, where are you today?
1: Today uh, I'm in Croydon North uh, the, my uh, constituency here in South London. Feeling Excellent. The changed, eh?
0: <laughs> Following the new guidelines, good to hear. Yes. Uh, well, Rishi Sunak has today set out his plan to replace the furlough scheme that was due to expire at the end of October. Following the introduction of new coronavirus restrictions, the Chancellor cancelled his budget and set out proposals to help companies keep workers on part-time rather than sacking them. But the Resolution Foundation has warned that the scheme will not actually incentivise firms to keep workers on part-time beyond January, while the IFS said it would lead to more job losses. Let's hear Sunak. First, It will support viable jobs. To make sure of that, employees must work at least a third of their normal hours and be paid for that work as normal by their employer. The government, together with employers, will then increase those people's wages, covering two-thirds of the pay they have lost by reducing their working hours. And the employee
2: will keep their job. Uh, Paul how how do you think rishi's done today well, um, the overwhelming impression is that actually a lot of business like it, a lot of uh, the trade unions have liked it on the whole. TUC has welcomed it. Obviously, why? Because the TUC and the unions actually really uh, helped formulate much of this policy today. Now, at the edges, there's certainly quibbles and as Annalisa Dodd's made clear in the chamber. You know, there are things that Labour wants this to go uh, much further in other other senses. There are unanswered questions about mortgage repossessions, about evictions, all sorts of stuff. Um, but on the big picture, I think um, you could almost sense from Sunak, there was there was a sort of sense of a sigh of relief, really, just having done this. Because, boy, if he hadn't done this, he would have been in big, big trouble. Um, and it that's why it felt a bit panicked, a bit rushed. Um, overall, you can sell from today. There's no question that imagine if they'd done this a week ago or two weeks ago. The government would have been in much more control in terms of the politics of it. Now it looks like it's, you know, it's come after a deadline that's really important, which was last week, 45 day notice period for a lot of redundant for big firm redundancies. It's, it's just ahead of a, a deadline for for 30 days, which is coming up next week. So it might think it's just got another wire. Um, but I think this is one example where you could say um, that actually Labour strategically have got it right by Annelies Dodd saying, look, I called for this 40 times and 20 times i got no answer. That's politically pretty smart. Um, uh, I think from Sunak's point of view, the sheen is coming off a bit. It's obvious. Um, I asked him a question just now, you know, did your eat out to help out scheme, you know, did you model it um, in terms of behaviour and whether or not that would impact on COVID and he didn't have an answer. So it just shows that actually the the wizzo brains in the Treasury perhaps aren't as smart as they think they are on things like COVID, but also on not reacting quickly enough to realizing you couldn't have some hardline Thatcherite cliff edge to this job scheme.
0: Yeah, Steve, it was almost like Labour forced Sunak into this because it was originally down as an urgent question today, and then he decided to make a statement um, off the back of that. But what did you make of today's announcements?
1: Well, I do think he's been pushed into this, and uh, Annalisa. Dodge the shadow chancellor was right she's been she's been calling time and again for the chancellor to do something about the looming cliff edge when furlough when furlough ends at the end of next month seven and a half million people currently on furlough and their jobs depending on that um we're now sliding into you know what looks like a second severe spike in infections initially we've got restrictions will it turn into a full-scale lockdown we don't know, but a lot of people are very worried about their jobs, and there's no way the government could do nothing. We're quite surprised they hadn't said something um a little sooner about what would happen so what's come today is welcome, but I don't think it goes i don't think it goes far enough. There are still too many unanswered questions about sectors that are really struggling now and will struggle as we move into you know the deeper set of restrictions the hospitality sector, theaters, just giving people a proportion of their pay isn't going to get those sectors through another six months and do we really want the economy to open up once there's a vaccine and find sectors as important as hospitality our high streets um the the theatres and the arts sector have all gone from the british economy i don't think we do we can't allow that to happen and yet you know the chancellor hasn't answered those questions still so we need more i don't know it'd be churlish not to welcome what's happened today but i don't think it's anything like enough
0: yeah, Rachel, you've been looking at where some of the gaps might be in in the Chancellor's strategy. What have you found?
3: um I think that I think the biggest one is uh, one which Steve has just mentioned there, which has been you know the arts sector. Uh, and one of the most striking quotes that is um one of the most striking reaction quotes has come from Julian Knight who's um, the Tory chair of the DCMS committee. And he says, um the truth is three times as many people in these sectors, meaning like the arts sectors, are currently on furlough than the national average, which suggests the job, job support scheme may not be enough to stop unprecedented redundancies and many organisations from facing extinction, which has just struck me as being pretty pretty serious and i think there's been a lot of reaction again as, as uh, steve says from hospitality sim that while this is helpful it's not going to make a, a great deal of difference particularly when uh, the hospitality sector makes most of its money in in the summer you know and this is we're facing another cliff edge here in march or january rather
0: yeah, and so, Steve, off the back of that and off off the back of the statement that's kind of changed things today, what, what exactly does Labour want to see happen? Does it actually want to see a continuation of furlough in sectors like the arts?
1: Well, we, we've not actually been calling for a continuation of furlough as is. The, um, what we've been calling for is targeted support for those sectors that are most at risk. And I think hospitality, the arts, theatres certainly fall into that. Uh, into that category, but but the second point is the damage, the further damage that will be, be done to the economy depends. <clears throat> excuse me, depends on how severe the next set of restrictions uh, and any uh, any coming lockdown is. And we have to remember, another lockdown is not inevitable. If if the government gets a grip or had got a grip on testing and track and trace, we could have avoided further restrictions and therefore any further damage to the economy. So you know why have, why did they not listen to all of those voices including ours telling them over the summer please get a grip on testing please ramp up the lab capacity that, that i was being contacted by council leaders who said there were university labs in their areas that wanted to get involved in in testing, and the government wasn't listening to them. And we, we we put them in touch with the government, they didn't even get a response. So it's a little bit late now, as we're entering into another set of restrictions. But there's still time to prevent a full lockdown. So please, government, get a grip on testing, get track and trace up and running. And then we don't need to do the damage to the economy that will threaten so many more jobs.
0: Go on, Rachel.
3: I was just going to say, is um, are you kind of concerned about how much funding that public health teams might have? Because we're hearing some suggestion that they're having to redo some of the contact tracing work that, like firms like Circle are doing currently.
1: Well, I mean, this is this has been an issue all all the way through. I mean, almost unbelievably, there was a real term cut in uh, public health funding in April. You know, right at the beginning of the lockdown. That, that should never have happened in the first place. But because the government promised councils at the beginning, they would fund them to do whatever's necessary to get communities through this crisis. They, they didn't meet that promise. And so councils are facing, I think it's an, around a £7 billion funding gap, which is between 10 and 15% of their entire uh, budgets for a year. Because that money hasn't come through from the government, councils are being forced by law to make cutbacks of that scale. So I was just speaking to uh, the leader of one of the London boroughs and she said the tragedy of this is that the the very heroes on the front line that got us through this crisis will now be the people who will be made redundant and lose their jobs that's a tragedy for them because the public expected them to be rewarded not thrown out of work but it's a tragedy for the rest of us too because those are the people that got us through the last lockdown who's going to get, get us through another lockdown if they've gone you know and it's not just the lockdown this time we're The economy is sliding into what could be the deepest recession in any of our lifetimes. And that means more people out of work, more people needing support. If councils don't have that support uh, available, where's it going to come from? If councils don't have the resources to support high streets to recover, where's the support going to come from? So we could just end up in a spiral of making things even worse because the government fundamentally broke the promise they made right at the start to, to, to fund councils to do this work.
2: Actually, Steve, on that point, I mean, the Chancellor today said nothing at all about local authority discretionary grants. Um, do you think he should extend them or at least increase them?
1: Well, the, the, the first point is that the the Chancellor and uh, the Community Secretary, Robert Jenrick, made a commitment to fully fund councils for the cost of getting through the last lockdown. And I haven't met that. Now we're moving into another one and there's no additional money. So that seven billion gap I talked about will grow. Now, seven billion, I know to most uh, most people who don't deal with council funding, that doesn't doesn't mean much in of its of itself. But you're talking already 10 to 15% cuts. If that stretches even further, what's it going to mean for, you know, people that sweep the streets will lose their jobs, the bins will be collected less frequently, the youth workers that are supporting young people will no longer be there, the social workers that are helping families that are really struggling, a lot of people experience high levels of mental ill health, for instance, during the the last lockdown, the social work won't be there. So the consequences of this will be catastrophic for, for, for many people. But we could end up having to pay even more to deal with the worsening consequences than if we just put the money in now to, to try and head it off from getting even worse. So Paul, you know, the, answer, the answer there, Paul, is the government should meet their promises. This isn't Labour calling for more money. This is just this is communities saying to the government, look, you said you'd do this and you didn't. What's going
0: on? Yeah, just just on sort of that point about the wider stuff, away from what was announced today, does it matter that the budget's been cancelled and the spending review might be cut to a year as a result of this? Or do you think the Chancellor had to do that?
1: I think it does matter. I mean, lo- looking at this again from the local government perspe- perspective, they're operating under circumstances of, of immense uncertainty. They want to know how much money they're going to have available to spend from next April. With a budget cancelled, they don't know. And that means they can't plan. And, you know, we know we're sliding into a recession. We know there's going to need to be more support for high streets if they're ever going to recover uh, from this. If local authorities don't have some idea about what funding they will have available, how on earth can they plan for that support? So I hope even if the budget is cancelled and I can see why he's taken that decision, we will need a spending review, a spending announcement
0: to give certainty to those public services about what will be available after eight Well, Sunak's statement was prompted by Boris Johnson's decision to impose a fresh round of coronavirus restrictions to tackle a surge in the virus. Pubs and restaurants will now be forced to close at 10pm, while the Prime Minister U-turned to again ask people to work from home if they can. Johnson has been criticised both for going too far and not going far enough. Most striking was the PM's estimated timescale for the restrictions. Let's listen. Mr Speaker, we will
1: spare no effort in developing vaccines, treatments, new forms of mass testing, but unless we palpably make progress we should assume that the restrictions I have announced will remain in place for perhaps six months. For the time being this virus is a fact of our lives and I must tell the House and the country that our fight against it will continue. We will not listen to those who say
0: let the virus rip, nor to those who urge a permanent lockdown. Uh, Paul, uh, the PM seems to be saying he's sort of chartering a middle course, a middle way through this. Um, Is it possible?
2: Well, he used this phrase, didn't he, at least twice, which was it's a balanced and proportionate set of measures. That's what he said. Um, now, that balancing act is incredibly difficult for any anyone in his position. I think Keir Starmer admits it would be incredibly difficult for him too. Um, but what seems quite strange is that the government still haven't um, followed the, the Scottish route, which is actually if you're really, really worried, and they are very worried, there's no question privately, they're even more worried, that if you're worried about the spread of this disease now, um, then why not do a ban on households mixing nationwide? Just, I mean, you know, my mum up in Rochdale in Greater Manchester has to deal with it. 14 million people are already dealing with it. Why not extend that to the whole of England? Um, They're doing it in Scotland, and we'll see whether or not it's a success because it's worked in the west of Scotland, the early signs are. Um, It just seems such a simple thing to do. Um, and it's not about the economy, because people mixing indoors has no impact on the economy. The PM kept going on and on, you know, we don't want to do anything that was a priority is to avoid a second lockdown, because that would damage the economy. People mixing indoors won't damage the economy. And what surprises me slightly is that Keir Starmer and Labour haven't really pushed that hard, because I'm pretty sure it's coming. Uh, And it, it, it seems slightly odd. I mean, I think that Labour know that he's going to have to come back maybe in a few weeks' time and toughen these measures. They could have been slightly ahead of the curve, I think.
0: Yeah, Steve, what do you make of that? Um, I think in some lockdown areas we're seeing a ban on household visits, but you're still allowed to meet up with another household in a pub or restaurant, so so yeah. you get yeah. the economic benefit, exactly. but, you, yeah. but you also get the health benefit. What? what why isn't Labour backing that?
1: Well, I mean, on... Um, On the restrictions, I think it's very important. This is such an unprecedented, a major national crisis. And the government's got an awful lot of it wrong, to be honest. Labour doesn't want to add to the confusion by proposing alternative rules that people should or shouldn't be following at this time. That doesn't mean we agree with every step of what the government's doing. It's just that we don't want to sow confusion because right now um, the priority is keeping people safe. And, um, you know, we've criticised the government for mixed messages. When Dominic Cummings went on his jaunt up to Durham and then tried to justify it, that caused a big breakdown in people following the rules because they, they you know, it, it, it sowed uncertainty. We we don't want to be sowing uncertainty, whatever our criticisms of what the government are, is doing might be. So I don't actually think we should be trying to get ahead of the government. That's playing politics, and we're not trying to play politics here. We try to keep people well. Um, I, but there's a there's a hook the government must not be let off of. And that's that the restrictions wouldn't be necessary and tighter restrictions of lockdown wouldn't be necessary if they've got a grip of testing and track and trace if you remember back in may boris johnson promised us a world-beating track and trace and testing system by the first of june as of today we're, we're in late september now it's still not here still not up and running back in may he was telling us that was how we could open up the economy and get back to work safely This week, he told us it makes no difference to the rate of infections. Well, that's manifestly nonsense, isn't it? If you don't know who's infected, you therefore can't warn them to self-isolate. They're still wandering around and they're infecting other people. And that that is exactly how the spread of the virus grows, which leads to further restrictions and ultimately to uh, a tighter lockdown with all the negatives that go with that. So the key to avoiding tight restrictions is to sort out testing, track and trace. The government still hasn't done it up until now, but we're still not in a lockdown, so there's still a chance they could do it. They, they really need to reach out, work with the experts on the front line. Local government in particular has been offering them support to increase lab capacity, to, to use the public health experts on the front line who know how you track and trace. They really, in my view, need to be look at how, how can we work this system locally rather than trying to control everything tightly from the ivory towers in Whitehall and keep getting it wrong.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that line on Boris, with Boris Johnson what what he said about tests and traces. week. he managed to get through about ninety percent of his statement without making a mistake, didn't he? And then <laughs> it's quite a big um, one. Yeah, he <laughs> was really nearly there, really close, Boris. But there we go. Well, I, know,
1: I think eventually we're going to get a, some kind of public inquiry into this whole situation it is unprecedented no government's going to get everything right of course they're not but I think this is such a fatal flaw in what they've done because you know if we're heading to a second lockdown now it is because they didn't sort out testing track and trace when they had the chance to do it.
0: Yeah Rachel you've been um, looking at um, public's opinion about test and trace this week and some of the problems behind it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, we we reported this morning on the um, latest test and test and trace figure, and I think it's um one in ten COVID tests got result within twenty four hours. We've had all kinds of what now seem to be just increasingly unrealistic promises. You know, 500,000 500, tests a day by the end of October, and then we're moving on to, um, you know, this moon sh- operation moonshot scheme, which will see sort of everyone able to order these quick fire tests, and it just seems to be having a, a a, a gradual impact on just the put what what the public's confidence is in the test and trace system which might be their their bigger problem and i know there was a, a lot of people have a a, a problem with the, the companies behind um test and trace as well in particular in particular circle we carried a story earlier this week saying that i think it was like three quarters of people polled just once the test and trace contracts taken off private companies and just put into um public Council, councils or public services hands so yeah I guess they have a massive problem with confidence when it comes to the trust and trust system as well
0: yeah and Steve do, do councils have the capabilities to take over these functions if I mean it's probably not going to happen under under Dido Harding in this government but could they
1: well they've been asking for it since April you know they the, the, the thing here it, Rachel's got that absolutely spot on because councils have public health directors and public health experts who have spent their careers learning how you trace down people with an infection and support them to self-isolate so other people don't get infected. Given that we have this expertise right across the country, why on earth did the government contract Serco, who don't have that expertise, to run the system? Why did they spend, what was it, two or three months on the Isle of Wight trying to develop their own um, app, which never worked, rather than, working with systems that already exist that were working in other countries. You know, they, they've they gone too slow on getting all of this uh, right. They could have looked at other countries and how it worked there and learned from that. But they chose to just rip everything from the centre, hand out contracts to their mates. And I'm afraid the whole country is suffering as a consequence of that. But, you know, this is where we are now. Um, there's still a chance that they could fix it. Local government is still offering the hand of partnership to government they want to take this on because they want to look after their communities and i really think it's time that the government just stopped being so obstinate and uh accepted that where there is expertise let's work with it let's keep people safe
0: um, Man manchester's kind of um brought in its own test and trace scheme or, or aspects of it are any other councils looking at doing similar do you know
1: well there are there are other councils that are doing this simply because the government scheme is failing so badly but when you you know you have to remember, since 2010, councils have lost you know up two thirds of their funding uh, from this government. They're facing another 10-15% funding gap this year because of the broken promises uh, over COVID funding. They're pretty hard strapped at the moment, uh, and they they can't all find the resources to to make this happen. So so what is required actually is not for the government to do a system that isn't working and local government try and backfill it is for the government to work with local government and the public health experts, pool the resource that we've got and make sure we keep people safe.
2: And you know what's really ironic about all this, this difference between centre and local when it comes to dealing with the pandemic, is there was Andrew Lansley's own reforms in 2013 that handed to public health local experts a massive responsibility and the government is not following through on it. I I find it kind of odd that it's almost as if this government has no uh, connection with what happened in 2013 when a lot of its MPs, a lot of its ministers, they were part of that same government. It's, it, there's a real amnesia going on about the fact that where does the responsibility stem from? Where does it lie originally? Uh, and they're not following through even on their own logic of, of that reform.
1: Yeah. And Gus O'Donnell, actually, um, speaking uh, today, you know, certainly over the last 24 hours, a former head of the civil service under David Cameron. Questioning why the government would reform Public Health England in the middle of this crisis. I mean, he, his view was they're just trying to shuffle off the blame for what they've got wrong. And you, you know, you 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 don't reorganise the fire brigade in the middle of a fire, you Which is what they've done. You you need to have certainty in these institutions that they can get on and do their job.
0: And um, Paul, just before we move on, I wanted to ask you about uh, Baroness Dido Harding, who's running tests and trace. Um, She's been coming in for some criticism as, as Tess and Trace has been coming in for some criticism. And and Boris Johnson was very unhappy with this criticism at Prime Minister's questions or during a statement. I can't remember which. He called them unseemly. what What's the deal there? Um, why is Boris Johnson so sensitive about criticism of Dido Harding?
2: I find it baffling. Both Johnson and uh, Matt Hancock seem to be... Um, besotted almost with uh, Dido Harding is some strange relationship whereby um, they hand her a job without any competition this new job and she admitted that in evidence actually recently that um, you know it was she didn't want the job she was Matt Hancock asked her to do it um, and I know there are a lot of people I've talked to privately in the NHS who deeply resent the word NHS being anywhere near test and trace. The same with the app today, they feel it undermines the NHS brand. it It should really be called a Circo test and trace, although everyone knows what that would mean. Um, I think the problem with Dida Harding is, that she she tries to have a cake and eat it. She tries to say, "Look, I'm just a, a functioning former businesswoman who just is quite pragmatic and gets on with things. I'm quite efficient. I like to improve things. But on the other hand, um, she behaves completely like a politician without any of the accountability. So she does, she's not a minister, so she doesn't face any questions in the Lords. We very rarely now get to speak to her or quiz her. Um, and yet she behaves like a politician. Believe me, every week I do these NHS test and trace stats and every week, we journalists see the real story, but you will see the press release from Dido Harding and the story, the real story and the real picture is nowhere near to be seen. They'll, they'll spin the figures. They'll say, Oh, well, overall since the start of the scheme, we've got X number of people tested. Well, we're not interested in since the start of the scheme, we're interested in now, right here and now, how's it doing this week? They completely ignore that. They, they fiddle the figures into, they she even fiddled the PM zone 24 hour t- target He's the one who said within 24 hours, not you or me, the prime minister said we've got a target to turn around 100 percent of them by the end of June tw- in, within 24 hours. Dida Harding will say, well, actually, if you talk about by the end of the next day, then actually it looks a bit better. And it's the same on contact tracing. If you she, the figure is supposed to be 80 percent to make it viable. Because it's lower than eighty percent on the the overall figures that we see every week, she then changes the goalposts and say, actually, if of those whose contacts we've obtained, it's it's eighty four percent. So she behaves like a minister, yet doesn't have any of the accountability of a minister. And sorry for sounding a bit ranty about it, but it really annoys me. No, no, I'm, I'm,
0: I'm, glad, I'm glad I asked you, Paul, because because I, I knew that was in there. So yeah. uh,
3: it's <laughs> true. It, they, they select a different fact every week to tell you that makes, that makes them sound good, and then they pop that at the top of the press release it's shocking and, and you to, yeah it's really frustrating but really, it's, but really it's frustrating. part of a
1: bigger story i think i, I suspect paul you'll, you'll agree with this we you know one of the, the great things about this country is we have a non-party political civil service but they're trying to politicize it so it's extremely unusual to well it, it's it's unprecedented that you would appoint a a conservative peer to a civil service job and yet that's what happened is happening and you know, we've all seen some of the leaked reports coming out of Number 10 from Dominic Cummings about his desire to politicise the civil service. Well, I think that's really, really, really damaging. Senior civil servants are appointed because of their expertise, not because they're cronies of whoever happens to be in 10 Downing Street at that particular moment. And the more that we move towards a politicised model, the more we're de-skilling it and the more that will go wrong. And I think that's what we're seeing with Dide Harding. But it's not only David Harding now.
2: I think there might have to become a point at some point, Steve, and this might be one for John Ashworth, where you guys actually say, could you stop using the word NHS for NHS?" as and Trace? Um, that, I don't know if that point's near yet, but it might be.
1: No, I'm happy to pick you up on that one, Paul. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: Definitely let us know. Well, we um, just, uh, yeah, the, the brand of NHS, you know, it's one of this country's greatest institutions. We can't let it be denigrated. Yeah,
0: just, just before we move on, has everyone got the app?
3: Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> not yet. Not yet. I just haven't had a I'm going
1: there. to download
0: it today, absolutely. <laughs> and moving on, um, it's meant to be party conference season, so the four of us should really be in some overpriced hotel bar right now, nursing hangovers and gossiping. But instead, due to COVID, it's all taking place online. This week was Labour's go at a virtual conference, and Keir Starmer managed to make a mark by saying Jeremy Corbyn deserved to lose the last election. But he couldn't deal with what has become a perennial difficulty for Labour, the question of Scottish independence. Let's listen to Starmer's interview with Sky's Beth Rigby when he was asked whether he stands by comments he made in January in which he suggested he wouldn't block a second independence referendum if the Scottish people voted for it. Let's hear it. Labour Party position will be... uh, What
1: is the Labour Party position? What you said in January. What happens beyond that is hypothetical and... Um, you're you're, you're dodging the question in politics people say with great certainty what's going to happen who's going to win what they're going to do what's going to happen happen. i'm asking you whether you stand by what you said in january when you said they would have a mandate for that
0: well these issues are questions um for scotland i do stand um
1: by that i'm setting out the argument that we the labour party scottish labor will will be making between now next may
0: Uh, Paul, overall, has it been a good week for Starmer and Labour or do you think the fact that we haven't had a proper conference hasn't helped?
2: Uh, I don't think it has helped, definitely, because the one thing I noticed from watching Keir Starmer deliver his big speech was the lack of applause lines. You know, politics is about applause lines as much as everything else. Um, And it's, you know... I know there's this big thing about you have to talk to the country, and not just your party. But sometimes if your party is there and is applauding uh, what you're doing, that can make a difference to the way the public perceives you. Um, you know, we saw in the general election, uh, the TV debates, you know, the audience participation was really important. When Boris Johnson said and he blurted out, you know, um, that he, he, he was asked uh, about did he did he always tell the truth? The public in that audience laughed and that laugh was the story it was the reaction as much as the actual politician's uh, presence. And so I think it it, it suffered from that a bit, but on the whole, he delivered it pretty well and the messages were right because strategically, you know, we've said this a lot, strategic patience is what is what Keir Starmer's all about. He won't give people an instant hit on, on their terms. He'll talk on his terms, which is why that Scottish thing was quite interesting this week because for once he couldn't avoid things on someone else's terms. He had to give an answer. But I think overall he'll be pleased because he said, look, we need to reconnect. We've got a long, long way to go. Uh, And I thought the most interesting thing in the entire speech was a line where he said, this isn't going to change. I'm not going to win back the trust of people who haven't voted for us with one speech or one policy. And he was absolutely right. That's not how it works. Uh, But he is going to have to sort of slowly fill in a lot of those details.
0: Yeah, Steve, how's Labour online conference been for you?
1: Well,
2: it was very... I spent three days on
1: back-to-back Zooms, um, which... Weirdly, it did feel quite a lot like being in back-to-back panels, which is what happens to your <laughs> yeah. were you at party conferences. Were you drinking warm wine uh,
3: in
0: between uh, each one? Or you- <laughs> well,
1: I was say, the bit that was missing was what should we call it—the convivial element. Uh, <laughs> the <that that> was- <laughs> and, and actually, that that is quite an important part of conference. You know, the the you know the informal conversations you have with politicians, council leaders, councillors, party members uh, in the bars at the back of uh, meeting halls. Those are all what give you a, a sense of how the parties feeling how the is moving forwards and, and that none of us got because it was uh was virtual but um, I, I know i think from the public point of view uh the, the thing they will have most noticed was the leader's speech and that's probably the same whether the conference was was virtual or or, or real and i thought you know i thought keir did incredibly well uh myself he um you know we're four years out from the next general election we're only months away from having ha- suffered our worst general election defeat for 85 years. As, as Keir said in his speech, the Conservatives have had as many prime ministers elected in the last five years as Labour's had in the last 75 years. The, the first stage of Labour recovering and building trust is for the public to get to know who our new leader was. And I thought uh, the, the purpose of the speech was to introduce Keir. He talked about his family, the party political broadcast we had uh, yesterday. He was standing in front of his uh, you know the, 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 the house, the modest house that he grew up in. Uh, down in Oxstead, I think Keir, the party's introducing Keir to the public. Keir was establishing himself and his values. And on that, we can build as we move towards the next election, um, what I hope will be uh, an election manifesto that will be, in Keir's words, the sound of the future coming.
0: Yeah, Rachel, Keir Starmer did have some trouble with this question of Scottish independence, didn't he? Why can't Labour sort out an answer on this? That He must have seen this coming a mile off
3: yeah well, i think he um he, he uh sky news's beth rigby eventually got uh keir starmer to say that he he stood by something that he said in january which was that you know which was essentially an acknowledgement of should the smp win again at the um the hollywood elections in in 2021 that they would, have a mandate then to start pushing for a second referendum, but it's it's a bit like the Brexit question for, for Labour and that there's just there's no good answer for them. You know they've been Labour's essentially been replaced by the SNP in Scotland, um, so they can't afford to um, alienate independence supporters. But similarly, they're, they're going to have to compete with the Conservative for the for the pro union vote as well. So it's just a very very difficult area. Um, but I think one of the things that they've also got to be really aware of is that uh, Labour has to look like it under, understands Scotland. And it has to really avoid the, the constant acu- accusation that Scottish Labour is, is simply a, a branch office of the, of the UK Labour. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest problems that Keir could do perhaps a bit more to, to show he, he's got to grips with.
2: I thought actually his final answer when he when Beth Rigby got out of him in the end was actually the right answer, which is, look, this is Scotland's issue. You know, it's up to Scotland. Um, and, you know, that's surely the right answer for a politician. Um, and it, 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 I don't think he should have been that, that uh, squeamish about saying it. Uh, the funny thing was, ultimately, of course, and I might have got this wrong, but I'm pretty sure when Cameron granted the last referendum for Scotland, it was done via an order in council. It wasn't a a vote by the House of Commons or the Lords. It's actually done by the Prime Minister in an order of council. So it's nothing to do with Keir Starmer. It's actually going to be Boris Johnson who makes that final call. Now, obviously, you can't say that to sort of absolve yourself from responsibility, but he could have kind of pointed that out. Look, uh, at the same time, as saying, look, ultimately, I think, you know, if a mandate is given by the Scottish people, it's up to the Scottish people.
0: Yeah, Steve, do you think Keir Starmer appeared a bit underprepared for that line of questioning? As Paul said, there are plenty of things he could have said.
1: No, I, th- I think the, the difficulty in this, you know, I'm sp- let's f- first off, I'm speaking here as a South London MP. That's about as far as you can get from Scotland in our country. So I don't, I don't have any particular special insights Uh, And it's true that this is a matter matter for Scotland to decide, not for English English MPs like me. But I do know that Scottish Labour is standing on a platform of opposing uh, a second independence referendum. So that's what Labour will be offering, Scottish Labour will be offering Scottish voters when they vote next May. And I can understand why those of us that are in England shouldn't try and muddy the waters by second guessing what another party might do if they win. You know, Scottish Labour's got a uh, a clear view there.
2: And I think we should be backing them to to say it. Would it be a lot easier if you had a different leader in Scotland, though, Steve?
1: Again, Paul, that's a matter for Scottish Labour.
2: Oh. <laughs> You're well trained.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, the Tories were all over it, though, issuing a comment from Michael Gove almost immediately, and you, you can see them just whirring up the old poster from what 2015 was it with uh, Miliband in in uh, in whoever the Scottish leader's pocket is that work yeah. anymore
1: there's i mean I, th- I think there's a much broader issue here about where power lies not just within the united kingdom uh in, in the, the nations of the united kingdom but across the whole country you know I, I represent a constituency in south london but power can feel as remote from people in my constituency even though westminster is just eight miles up the road uh, than as it can from people in scotland and i think we need to look at how do we get power out of Whitehall and into the hands of communities up and down the country. Now, there's going to be an element of that that will relate to the nations, but other aspects of it will relate to the regions, cities, communities, public service users, workers in the workplace. Big and very interesting discussion to have around that, but we don't need to resolve it right now. We've got a number of years until we get our manifesto for the next election ready.
2: Of course, the big problem, I think, is, is one thing we've just talked about, which is Keir Starmer and how long it is to the next election. Because you might well argue that unlike Ed Miliband, and certainly unlike Jeremy Corbyn, if you've got voters in Scotland who think there's a genuine chance of a Labour government at the UK level, that they will then perhaps not vote for independence. And that's surely the biggest weapon Labour have. Well, we've got this possibility, a genuine probability, that they could argue, of having a Labour Prime Minister again. That was never really that convincing under Ed Miliband. It was never certainly convincing under Jeremy Corbyn in Scotland. And that's that's a dilemma, I think, for Keir Starmer. He wants people to know that up in Scotland, yet he can't interfere. Um, and I think that's, it's quite a difficult problem.
1: History has proved, proved Paul right on um, some of the points he made there about you know Labour's uh, recent uh, recent leaders and of course the, the elections coming up in Scotland in May are for Holyrood not for Westminster so they will be fought on Scottish, uh, on, on Scottish issues um, and when it comes to the next general election I agree with you voters across the country will be helping to choose the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and if Labour has a credible candidate with a credible agenda for change that will benefit the whole country then clearly that's going to benefit Labour candidates wherever they're standing england Scotland uh, or Wales.
3: Do you think it would benefit um, Labour overall and and benefit Labour in Scotland if you had a a Labour person who were to lead the the pro-union campaign, for example, Gordon Brown? Do you think that would be helpful for a recovery in Scotland? Well,
1: I think, you know, again, it's not for me to intervene too much in what Scottish Labour does. But there's a lot of figures, big figures in Scottish Labour who have something to say and it's worth hearing. And that includes Uh, Gordon Brown it's not for me to say who will lead what aspects of that debate but I certainly think we should be using whatever assets we have to try and convince and and persuade Scottish voters that Labour offers them a better vision for their country's future as well as the future of the whole United Kingdom right we must move
0: on now it's time for the quiz Uh, and with the flashy party conference videos and addresses tv addresses to the public from Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer this week's is all about party political broadcasts. Ooh. Uh, so, the only rule is just shout the answer if you know it. And, Steve, you should definitely get a couple of these. No pressure. <laughs> it's fastest, fastest, <laughs> it's fastest voice first as well. Uh, question number one. Which politician was dubbed the uncredible shrinking man in a 2014 Labour broadcast?
2: Oh, who was that?
0: Oh, who
2: was it? It wasn't Osborne, was it? No.
0: Nick Clegg? Yes, well done, Steve. It was Nick Very Clegg. Good. Great. Yeah, the, the broadcast uh, in the style of a 1950s sci-fi film uh, focused on Clegg around the cabinet table... Uh, getting increasingly smaller as the Tories ripped up his election promises and he had to go along with it oh, um, question number two uh, which party employed five-year-old children to play Boris Johnson, David Cameron, George Osborne and Jeremy Corbyn in 2016? agreed, agreed. Yes. <laughs> it. Well, that's one it was all... great it was a great PPB that. That. Yeah, I just watched it again, it was good um, okay, so uh, it's between Paul and Steve for the win or Rachel to tie the whole thing Final question. Which British Hollywood character actor starred in Labour's 1997 election broadcast?
1: Oh, I really should know this, shouldn't I?
2: Oh. 97.
1: Oh, genuinely can't in, remember. Ian McKellen? I think it's to too young to watch it, but that wouldn't be true.
2: Not Ian McKellen. Um, um,
1: we should have got that, shouldn't we?
2: Give us a clue, Arj. What sort of actor? Film actor?
0: Yeah, film actor, character actor, very famous. uh, No longer with us, unfortunately.
3: Oh. Uh, I hope I
0: haven't killed them off (laughs) (laughs) anyway. No, What's he been in? Uh, Okay, yeah, I'll give you some of his films. How about that? Hang on a second. Let's get him up. Uh, He has been in uh, The Usual Suspects. He's been so John, in
2: John Hurt. No. Oh, Pete Postlethwaite.
0: Well done. Yes,
2: oh, it took. It's...
0: I'm not sure, Paul, because it took <laughs> you a long time and a lot of clues to get that. So I'm not sure I'm <laughs> going to give you a point for that. To be honest, I think <laughs> it's a draw. <laughs> Paul,
1: congratulations. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it's a kind of. I watched it. It's a kind of weird party political broadcast starring Pete Postlethwaite. He's a slightly creepy taxi driver. Who somehow knows everything remember, about, a little, about a little girl who gets into the back with her with her dad, yeah, and then in that, the yeah. end he turns out to be an angel, and both him and the taxi vanish, and time goes into reverse to give the time, give the dad time to go and vote for Labour. It's very odd, worth a watch.
2: I remember it really well, actually. It was quite spooky at the time. I was, um... was real. Pete Posselwet was actually, although he, yeah, you're right, he's dead. I think there was there was someone in Hollywood who said, actually, he was the greatest ever actor in Hollywood. I think he, he was really highly rated by Americans, uh, and more than over here. It's quite interesting.
0: Well, it's he... Probably... Clearly spot on, Paul. <laughs> hey, helped help Labour to a huge victory, so... <laughs> more than one string to his bow.
2: The one thing I'll never forget from the 97 was that, that classic... Uh, video outside Royal Festival Hall was everyone's singing um you know things can only get better and there's Prescott and Mandelson on tapping along and Kinnock and the the camera pans along and who's there but really going for it and waggling all along to all the music is Emily (laughs) Thornbury. you get that bloody quiet for the last five years
0: (laughs) Um, unfortunately that's all we have time for this week thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons people on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review please also check out running mate our fantastic podcast on the us elections which is aimed at brits and get your daily dose of what's happening in westminster by subscribing to the warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone uh, we'll just leave you with the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, struggling to set out the government's position on its casual sex ban.
2: How long is this casual sex ban going to last? You're saying that no social distancing needed in established relationships. What about people who are not in an established... Why am I whispering? I don't know. I,
0: I, I don't know. You're, you're live on national TV, <laughs> Indeed. Um, The um, uh, Look, there are...
2: It's OK to smile.
0: In these, in these rules that we have to bring in, you have to have... Uh, there have to be boundaries. People need to be sensible. And if you're in a relationship that is, uh, that, that is is well-established, you know, that's that's what is that it like means. that like six months? What it means is pe- not uh, people be realizing that by tr- when you've had by, by coming into close contact with people in other households, know. then that is how the virus spreads.